proudly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Kat, and with the lovely Diana O'Carroll. Hello. While Chris is off swanning round in sunny South Africa, oh, it's such a hard life for him, we're stuck here in chilly Cambridge. Coming up on the show, we'll be finding out how scientists have developed a way to test if the relatives of someone with bowel cancer may be at risk of the disease themselves. We'll find out how researchers have designed a new DNA code. And finally, not waving, but recharging. How nanogenerators could help you charge up your phone just by waving your arms around. All that and more coming up later. This week on the show, we're looking at the history of medicine. We may complain about the National Health Service today, but things used to be much worse a couple of hundred years ago. In the late 18th and early 19th century, body snatching was big business. Certain taverns, the fortune of war opposite St Bartholomew's Hospital, the bricklayer's arms in Lambeth, became notorious as the haunt of resurrection gangs, and anyone venturing into the cellar for an illicit pint might find themselves in less lively company than they bargained for. From the early anatomical ideas of the Romans to the medical history being made today, via the Canterbury Tales and Galileo's eyeballs, we'll be taking a stroll through the annals of medicine here on The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. First up on the news this week, it's artificial DNA. Scientists have turned the basic structure of DNA on its head, taking it from four bases to 12. This 12-base system has already been implemented in developing new forms of personalised medicine, but now the researchers want to see if this more complex DNA can be self-sustaining. 56 years ago, Watson and Crick described DNA as containing base pairs made up of adenine, thymine, guanine and cytosine, or A, T, G and C. As far as we know, all DNA on Earth uses only these four bases. But now Steve Bennett and colleagues from Florida have rewritten these rules, and his group are testing a system that uses eight more bases. They hope the research will shed light on how life started on Earth by producing a self-sustaining molecule capable of Darwinian evolution and reproduction. And it's similar to the one that is thought to have appeared on Earth nearly four billion years ago. At the American Chemical Society meeting this week, Bennett described his ultimate goal to synthesise a similar molecule in his lab at the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution. His 12-letter genetic system is capable of nearly all of the actions that define a living thing – reproduction, growth and response to its environment. But it still isn't self-sustaining, Benner explained. You need a graduate or postdoc to come in the morning and feed it. It doesn't look for its own food. No one has gotten that first step to work. If you start making estimates of how many molecules you have to look for in order to find one that does this, you're talking about 1 times 10 to the 34 molecules, he said. So it sounds like something from the X-Files, but one day they may grow their very own alien DNA molecule in the lab. Crikey, fascinating stuff. Uh, speaking of DNA, here's a story about how cancer can run in families. Now, the key to treating cancer, as we know successfully, is to catch it as early as possible. And this is particularly true in the case of bowel cancer, where around 8 out of 10 people will survive the cancer if it's caught at an early stage. But sadly, at the moment, we only detect about 1 in 10 cancers this early. Now, we already know from research that having a family history of bowel cancer increases the risk of developing the disease yourself. So, for example... 
just having one first-degree relative with bowel cancer can double your risk. That's a parent, a sibling or a child. And if they were diagnosed at a young age, say under the age of 45, this increases your chances of developing bowel cancer even more. Well, previous research has suggested that offering colonoscopy screening to people from families with a strong family history of bowel cancer could help to save lives. But it's not really practically possible to screen everyone who's just got a relative who's got bowel cancer. Now, some research from Cancer Research UK funded scientists at the Institute of Cancer Research in Surrey has shown that a simple test could help to identify people with bowel cancer whose immediate relatives are at the highest risk of developing the disease themselves. Now, the scientists studied DNA in tumour samples taken from nearly 3,000 people with bowel cancer and they were looking for signs of something called microsatellite instability. This is basically messed up DNA and it happens when there are faults in the genes that repair DNA. So it's sort of a proxy measure for mistakes in these crucial genes. Now the researchers found that first degree relatives of patients whose tumours showed this microsatellite instability were much more likely up to 20 times more to develop bowel cancer themselves than the relatives of patients whose tumours didn't show the instability, particularly if the patient themselves developed cancer under the age of 45. Now overall this means that the scientists think it would probably be worth screening people from the age of 25 if they come from a family where someone young developed bowel cancer and their cancer had this microsatellite instability. But on the flip side, people related to patients whose tumours don't show this microsatellite instability probably wouldn't need screening from such a young age. So in fact, this will help us to target really stretch screening resources to the people who are at the highest risk. And it will mean that people who aren't at such a high risk won't have to have a nasty colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's great because you, uh, you really need to catch that one early, don't you? Absolutely. It's really a successful treatment if you can catch bowel cancer early. Fantastic. Well, the next story is truly juicy couture, maybe if I used a proper French accent. Um, But charging your mobile phone could be done just by waving your arms and legs about a bit, according to scientists in the US. Now, Zhongling Wang and colleagues have used millions of nanowires made from zinc oxide to generate electric currents from simple body movements, such as walking or even the flow of blood around your body. And the researchers say this technology could negate the use for batteries in the future. So presented again at the American Chemical Society meeting this week, Wang described how these nanowires are piezoelectric, which means every time they are subjected to mechanical stress, they produce a current. Now, last year, the researchers placed a nanowire generator in a biofluid and they passed ultrasonic waves through it, and the movement produced a small but detectable direct current. This time, the researchers say that making the nanowires out of zinc oxide means they can generate electricity from much lower frequency movements. And that includes waving your arms about or the effects of a soft breeze on a fabric. The nanogenerators are made by growing these zinc oxide wires radially around conductive fibres. And they say they do need quite a lot of these nanogenerators to make enough current to run something like a mobile phone. But the zinc oxide nanowires can actually be grown on all sorts of different surfaces, such as metals, ceramics, or even clothing. And the wires are only 1 25th the diameter of a human hair. So theoretically, you could incorporate them into a T-shirt and they'd remain virtually invisible, which is pretty cool. Fantastic. What's even more exciting is that these energy materials generate current in air and in water. So as long as the device you want to charge is waterproof, you can give it some juice while you're swimming.
Oh, that'd be fantastic. Just have a quick rave, go for a quick swim, <laughs> charge off anything. Absolutely great. Another interesting technological solution to a, a problem is the problem of TB or tuberculosis, which is definitely a growing problem around the world. And it's certainly on the rise in the West, as well as in the developing world. And it's thought that actually someone somewhere in the world is being infected with TB every single second. Now, researchers in the US have actually made a discovery this week that could help scientists to develop new drugs to tackle the growing problem of TB. Well, current TB treatments only tackle actively growing bacteria. This is the mycobacterium tuberculosis that causes the disease. But the bugs can also lie low in the body. This is called latency. And it makes them very difficult to treat effectively. And it's thought that around a third of the world's population has some kind of latent infection with the mycobacterium tuberculosis. And then one in ten of these will go on to develop full-blown TB. Now, researchers led by Barbara Garitana at the University of Maryland have uncovered the molecular structure and the mechanism of an enzyme called NAD plus synthetase, which plays an important role in the TB bacterium's energy production by producing a chemical called NAD plus. Now, this is a really important drug target because while humans use many different molecular pathways to produce our own NAD plus, and that's something that's involved in our metabolism, how we make energy in our cells, the TB bacteria only use two pathways and both rely on this enzyme, NAD plus synthetase. And the enzyme's also needed even if the bacteria are lying low and lying latent. So knocking out this enzyme using drugs could be a really powerful and very specific way to treat TB infections, including these latent infections. So the researchers used a technique called X-ray crystallography to find the structure of NAD plus synthetase down to the atomic scale. And they do this by firing high-energy X-ray beams through crystals made of the enzyme and then you analyse the resulting image by computer. This is the same way that people figured out the structure of DNA you know, 50, 60 years ago. It's still very useful today. And now that we have this structure, it's going to be possible to rationally design drugs that would lock into crucial parts of the enzyme and block its activity. So this is a, a really exciting step forward in the fight against TB. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This week, Chris, Mira, Ben and Dave are all in Grahamstown in South Africa. All right, for some. raining. <laughs> yeah, I hope they haven't tried any of the wine yet. I want, I want some for me. Anyway, uh, they're there for SciFest Africa while we're stuck here in Cambridge. While the lads are doing explosive science demonstrations for packed houses, Mira has been able to see some of the events going on throughout the week. And she joins us now. Hello, Mira. Hello. I've been practising how to say hello in Afrikaans. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, go on. Hoya aunt. Okay. It's very, it's like, you know, the phlegmy sound, so yeah. queer aunt. I don't know, I'm hoping that people listening aren't going to be offended by the way I'm saying it, but that's what <laughs> I've just learned how to say hello. But hello anyway. Hello. Right, so uh, tell us a bit about this festival. Just how big is it? It's actually, it's really big. It's a lot bigger than I thought it's going to be before we got here, because it's in a town called Grahamstown, which isn't a particularly large town, and it's not really well known um, if you don't really live in South Africa. It's in the Eastern Cape, and it's actually a bit like Cambridge, because it's quite a small town. You can kind of walk around everywhere, but it's got a really good, prestigious university, Rhodes University, as part of it, which is hosting a lot of the things to do with the festival. And, I mean, it's a small town, but... They're expecting up to 60,000 visitors to come here just for the science festival. And children wow. are traveling from all over the country. From They're sitting in buses for like 12 hours and 7 hours just to get here to see all the different scientific activities going on. Wow, and I hear you guys are something of a celebrity down there. What sort of events are, are on at the festival? 
there's a whole variety of events. And yes, the guys are celebrities. I'm not a celebrity because I'm not in the show with them, but they have been asked for their autograph. And also people are asking for pictures with them, which is quite interesting. <laughs> but um, their show has actually been a hit here. It's been sold out, I think, at the first two shows. And so 900 people came to see them do their thing. And um, they've been doing just great activities and things like that to do with light. So Ben does a brilliant trick at the beginning of the show where um, he's showing how UV works. So he's drawn a skeleton onto his body with a highlighter pen and then they dim down all of the lights and put UV lights on him and then obviously he's then glowing because the UV light is being absorbed and reflected out as visible light. And the kids just roar for this. They actually give like large rounds of applause just when they see this effect and then they're blowing up balloons and exploding bottles with liquid nitrogen. So it's going down very well. Fantastic. Are we going to hear about any of this next week? Um, yes, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about what they've been doing as part of their show, but as well as them doing this particular show, I've been roaming around doing interviews with various lecturers and workshops and things like that that are taking place, and that's all going to be the material for next week's show. So today I actually went to a game reserve and got to see some very cool animals, which will all be part of next week's show, and I've been learning how to glass blow, and I have been out to an estuary as well to learn about the species that you find in estuaries because they're very interesting ecosystems. I hear you had a go on a kudu horn as well. What's that like? Yes, it was interesting. Um, I didn't do it very well. I <laughs> the person showing it to me did it a lot better. But the whole kudu thing came about because as part of my game reserve trip today, I actually managed to witness a cheetah eating a kudu. And apparently that's not you don't get to see that very often, especially as I went at midday, which is the worst time of day at, completely to go to a game reserve because everyone's just asleep and hiding under trees and things like that. But um, I did get to see that. And yes, the kudu horn was a very interesting sound. I think they used to use it as a good form of communication in the past. I'm not jealous at all, honest. <laughs> <laughs> not jealous of the 26 degrees. Here. No. Have you have you made a trip to any of the vineyards yet? Because that's what I was thinking of doing. Um, no, no. I don't think. I think they're mostly in the Western Cape, but I have tasted the products of the vineyards, and they are very nice. Hard at work there. <laughs> <laughs> of course, constantly. We're naked scientists. <laughs> Great. Well, that was our very own Miracen Thillingham enjoying SciFest Africa in Grahamstown. And they'll be back next week with a special show recording at the festival. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Kat, and with the lovely Diana O'Carroll. This week, we're looking at the history of medicine and with its rich history of plagues and epidemics, London seems like a good place to start. Tom Birch, our backyard archaeologist in the Naked Archaeology podcasts, met up with Dr Richard Barnett from Cambridge University to find out why he thought London was a fitting subject for his book, Sick City. And living there, I may agree with him. Anyway, he started off with a reading from the book. In December 1831... John Bishop and Thomas Williams were hanged at Newgate Prison. Their execution was pure spectacle. Several thousand boisterous Londoners thronged the narrow streets around the prison to watch them dance the hemp and jig. Bishop and Williams began their careers as labourers, but in the mid-1820s they found a more profitable use for their shovels and picks. They became body snatchers or resurrection men, digging up the recently deceased and hawking their bodies around the medical schools. Body snatching was officially frowned upon as a violation of the sanctity of the grave. In private, however, surgeons and anatomists encouraged their pupils to obtain bodies for themselves in any way they could. In the late 18th and early 19th century, body snatching was big business, 
a vigorous black economy with a hierarchy as intricate as any modern-day long firm, certain taverns, the fortune of war opposite St. Bartholomew's Hospital, the bricklayer's arms in Lambeth, became notorious as the haunt of resurrection gangs, and anyone venturing into the cellar for an illicit pint might find themselves in less lively company than they bargained for. City burial grounds became contested territory as rival gangs fought turf wars over the most lucrative boneyards. In the cemetery of St. Sepulchre without Newgate, which had the misfortune to lie between Newgate Prison, St. Bartholomew's, the Company of Surgeons and the Fortune of War, body snatching became so rife that the church elders forced the hospital governors to provide a gatehouse and an unbribable night watchman. So, Richard, it's not a good idea to get buried in this period in London. Very bad. It does make you wonder how many graves in the City of London actually have bodies in them. Why is London so special in the history of medicine? Well, what I tried to do in Six City was to show the way in which the story of London and the story of medicine are so closely intertwined. In a sense, the best way to understand the history of medicine is to look at the history of London and vice versa. So many of the leading medical institutions of this country have been based in London. So many medical theories were developed here. But more broadly, of course, the history of London's population, the many different groups of people we've had living here, bring so many different perspectives on the history of medicine. So by looking at the history of London, you can understand not only doctors, not only surgeons, but also patients, quacks. You can understand how different ethnic groups, different social groups experience medicine, and also, of course, how they treated themselves. Folk medicine is a big part of London's history. So it's a massive, sprawling, I think for me, irresistible story to try and teach and write the history of medicine in London. So out of this massive, sprawling, irresistible story of the medical history of London, what is your favourite bit that we can still see today? Well, I think the old operating theatre in Herb Garrett is a wonderful place to go and start to learn about the history of medicine. One of the best things about that is, as, as you probably know, the Garrett is built above a church. And when they were refurbishing the Garrett, they found that the floor space beneath the operating theatre was filled with sawdust so that blood didn't drip down into the nave of the church during operations. But I think my personal favourite would be the church of St Bartholomew at Smithfield, Bart the Great as it's known. This is one of the oldest churches in the city of London. It was built in 1123 and it's really the last remnant of pre-modern monastic medicine. Obviously it's a church these days but I think it gives you some sense of what hospitals before the, the dissolution of the monasteries in the 13th and 14th centuries were really like. It's wonderfully atmospheric. You mentioned this date, 1123, which leads me on to my next question. Can we call the medicine of 2,000 years ago medicine? Well, of course, if we go back 2,000 years in London's history, what we think of is the Romans. And I think we can certainly talk about medical practitioners, doctors and surgeons in Roman society, Roman culture. They would have understood that. And just within the history of London, there's a rather nice example of sports medicine that the Romans were into during excavations at the site of the Guildhall, they uncovered a set of Roman surgical implements closely associated with the gladiatorial games. So doctors were clearly looking after, as it were, the sports cars, the wrestlers of, of their day. But it's a really good question. Where does medical practice begin and end? And it's very difficult to take our modern notions of medicine, of surgery, and just simply apply them willy-nilly back to the past. Trepanning is a great example of this. If you look at skulls from the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, fairly frequently they'll have holes drilled in them 
Now, some modern surgeons have interpreted this as a kind of surgical procedure. Very often they would do the same sort of thing to relieve pressure on the brain after an injury. But, of course, we have no idea what these were being done for, whether it was some sort of ritual, whether it was perhaps, who knows, some sort of punishment, or whether indeed it was medicine. So it's very, very difficult to set a start date or set the limits to what is medical practice. Who is your favourite character from the history of medicine in London? Well, there are so many to choose from, but I think my favourite is John St. John Long, a 19th century quack. Long was born in Ireland, but he came to London in the 1820s to try and be a fashionable portrait painter. He failed at this, but he did have extremely good looks and the classic Irish sort of silver tongue. He'd kiss the Blarney Stone. So he realised that he could become a great success as a quack with a fashionable, young, rich clientele. He offered several treatments. Probably the most famous was a massage of a balm, an ointment that he made up from turpentine and egg yolks and various other unattractive ingredients. And he'd massage this into the backs and shoulders of attractive, rich young women, and they'd liked it very much indeed. Unfortunately, in the 1830s, Long was prosecuted for manslaughter after several of his patients died. During his trial, the court was filled with these beautiful young women that he'd treated. They cheered him, and eventually when he was convicted and fined £250, an enormous sum of money in the 19th century, they paid it for him by subscription. So in a sense, he got away scot-free. So in London's rich medical history, it sometimes paid off to be a quack, but I think you should probably watch out for offers of massages from uh, any nice doctors out there. That was Cambridge University's Richard Barnett speaking to Tom Birch. And if you'd like to hear Tom digging up the archaeology we could find in our own backyards, check out the Naked Archaeology podcast at thenakedscientist.com slash archaeology. So we know that the Romans were practising some forms of medicine in the 2nd century AD, but how much did they really understand about the human body? Professor Vivian Nutton studies the history of medicine at University College London, but one particular physician he works on is Galenus of Pergamon. So, Vivian, when and where was Galenus practising? Galen was born in 129 AD in the Greek-speaking area of what is now Turkey, and he trained at Alexandria in Egypt, and then he spent 60 years or more of his life in Rome as a practitioner and as doctor to a succession of of Roman emperors. So he's really a Roman doctor. Right, and he was quite the anatomist as well. So how did he actually look at the anatomy of the human body? He believed anatomy was the key to medicine. He himself had never dissected human specimens successively. What he did was he took, he's a surgeon, so he had surgical training, but he believed in practicing surgery on animals to look and see how the human, how a living body worked. So he used skeletons, he used his surgical practice, and he used experiment on animals. Was he actually allowed to look at human bodies in the second century AD then? No, not really. There's a a taboo, I think, rather than a legal prohibition. But he could certainly see skeletons, and he advised people to take the best opportunity they could to look at a body. For instance, wander over a battlefield and poke around in corpses, or look at somebody hanging from a gibbet. Ooh, yuck. Um, But you've managed to locate a document that describes some of his work. So where did you find it, and what does it add to the story? Well, I've been working on a a text which has been almost forgotten for 500 years. And it's to do, it's called On Problematical Movements of the Body, in which Galen tries to understand how the body works. What is the relationship between the brain and other parts of the body? 
and he asks all the right questions and comes up with all the wrong answers. And what exactly are those wrong answers? Well, he, he believes very strongly that the brain, if you like, controls things. And many people believe the brain worked through nerves. But he then says, well, possibly it doesn't always work through nerves. Sometimes, he says for the tongue, the tongue is filled with air. When you stick your tongue out, the brain sends signals that pump air into the tongue. Alternatively, he says, each part of the body may in some way communicate directly, like a a living being with the brain. So he sees each part of the body as having, in a sense, life within it, and an independent, almost independent existence that can talk to the brain and chat with the brain. If the brain thinks of something, that part of the body immediately responds. Right, so if each part of the body has effectively its own soul, and I feel a bit like that sometimes, I have to say, then how did Galenus describe our control over it? Well, he believed that sometimes the brain directly controlled things through nerves. He, was very, he did enormous amounts of experiment on nerves and effectively discovered many new pathways of the nerves. And so for him, the brain and nerves work together. But at times, this thing doesn't quite work. Certainly, it isn't a conscious decision. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is the relationship between consciousness and activity. Do we do things because we want to do, because we decide to do, or does imagination play a role? Right, and and how did his findings, how did that feed into practical medicine of today, or even medieval medicine? His views became dominant in medieval medicine, except that the medieval people, on the whole, took his conclusions without his experimental attitude. He believed in experiment in dissection. The 16th century rediscovered the merits of dissection as the very basis for human anatomy. And for a long while, Galen's views, taken up by his later followers, dominated. But he believed in things like that he didn't believe in the circulation of blood, and gradually his ideas fell out of fashion. So in one sense, they don't contribute, but in another, they do because they stimulated lots of people to think about anatomy and the role of anatomy in practical medicine. So what else can we learn from his approach to medicine? What one can learn is is two things. The first is that to be a doctor, you've got to observe, and he's an enormously powerful observer. And the second thing is that he says, if you observe you also need to think. And that is a, a powerful message that he gives, and very important for any doctor today, linking observation and thinking. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but that was Professor Vivian Nutton, and he's based at the Wellcome Trust Centre for the History of Medicine at UCL. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Kat and with Diana O'Carroll. And this week we're looking at the history of medicine. Now, DNA technology has revolutionised the world. We can use it to trace our relatives, study how populations have evolved and migrated, and even to answer questions about where life came from in the first place. But there's also been a spin-off for literary historians too, thanks to the work of scientists at Cambridge University's biochemistry department. They've taken computer programmes designed to compare DNA sequences and developed a way to 
actually use them instead to compare the words and spellings of ancient texts like the Canterbury Tales and even the Bible. And what this can reveal is who copied who as versions of these writings were passed down from one generation to the next. Now, Dr Chris spoke earlier to Chris Howe to find out more. We're interested in the parallels between how scribes copied manuscripts in medieval times and made mistakes and then incorporated those mistakes as they made more copies of the manuscripts and how DNA gets copied and makes mistakes in the copying process that scientists call mutations and those mutations get propagated as the DNA gets copied in turn. So what you're saying is you could use the same tools that we've built to understand how DNA changes to understand how mistakes crept into literature going back for hundreds of, if not thousands of years? That's the approach, yes. So we have a lot of computer programs that allow us to look at DNA sequences from different organisms and work out what we call an evolutionary tree, basically a kind of family tree of those organisms. And what we're trying to do is to apply those computer programs to look at different versions of a text to build up a family tree, as it were, of the text. So talk us through it. How would you start? What texts would you do? And, and how would you actually convert the text into something that the computer program could understand? So in other words, it would think the text is a bit of DNA. OK, the computer programs, as you say, are, are used to looking at bits of DNA, and they're just a, a string of characters, which in the case of DNA can be one of four possibilities. So what we need to do is to take piece of text and code it as though it looks like a string of characters and basically what we do is is take each word and turn that into uh, represented by a character as it were in DNA. And what's the program looking for in order to work out how the text has changed over time then? It's basically looking for changes that are shared by two or more organisms if we're dealing with DNA manuscripts if we're dealing with texts and then it assumes that if those two or more organisms have a change that the others don't have that they're related to the exclusion of the others and, and it can build up evolutionary relationships that way. So if I'm a scribe and I'm copying one ancient piece of text and I make a mistake and, and or I put a certain combination of words together and then someone else you come along and copy my version you'd see the same combinations of wordings together and that's what your program will be picking up that relationship absolutely yeah that's how it works yeah. so what have you been looking at in terms of real text and real analysis well the the first experiments we did were a few years ago now on the canterbury tales and in particular on the the prologue to the wife of bath's tale and and that worked very well the conclusions that we came to using our computer programs really very similar to the the kind of accepted conclusions that people had come to for years of study of those texts. So that validated the, the method, but what did you actually see? What, what was it proving? It's basically showing which manuscripts were, were copied from the same earlier version, because that's something that's quite interesting for people studying texts, to know which versions of a text were copied from the same earlier version, maybe therefore were copied in the same place or copied by the same scribe. Since then, we've moved on to different texts. We've done some work on the New Testament, uh, which was, was interesting. Most recently, we've worked on a political philosophy treatise by Dante of Inferno fame called Monarchia. And again, what happened there was that we were using data provided by people who'd been studying the manuscripts for a long period of time and who had their own conclusions about the relationships between them and trying to test out our methods by using those data in our programs. And we didn't know at the outset what they were thinking we might find or not find, 
Uh, we didn't even know actually what the text was. We were just told, go away and see what you can find. And we managed to work out relationships between different forms of the text and then went back to the, the experts who'd been working on it and said, OK, this is what we found. And they said, that's amazing. That's exactly what the scholars have thought, except we can come to those conclusions very quickly and save the manuscript scholars a lot of time, a lot of backs of envelopes in doing their own calculations. What about spelling mistakes? Because one of the things that's very noticeable if you read Old English is that you might see sulphur written with an F, it might be written PH. There must be loads of examples like that. So can your programme get around that? That's a very good point. And for quite a long time, spelling was quite fluid. So because, therefore, a scribe making their own copy might change the spelling in the same way in many different places in the manuscript, we actually, for safety's sake, if you like, omit spelling changes from from that kind of analysis. Similarly, dialect words we, we omit as well. So, for example, a scribe working in Scotland would probably change church to Kirk, and we tend to omit those because two scribes in Scotland might therefore independently make the same changes. Have you got people queuing up all around the world to use this now? Because it sounds like an amazing tool. It could, it could save so much time. Uh, well, people, people are either lovers or haters, I think. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are some people who have said, yes, we think this is a really powerful tool and we'd like to learn how to use it. Equally, there are other people who say, this, this will never work, it can't possibly replace conventional scholarship. And I think I would agree with them. It's, it's actually not something that we would claim will replace conventional scholarship. You should only follow a computer program as far as an intellectual precipice, I always say, and not beyond. Cambridge University's Chris Howe explaining how he's adapted the systems normally used to decode DNA sequences to enable him to trace the ancestries of ancient texts. And some sensible advice there, I think. <laughs> Don't fall off your intellectual precipice. You are listening to The Maker Scientist with me, Dr Cat, and with Diana O'Carroll. We're talking this week about the history of medicine from ancient to modern. Now, modern medicine tends to revolve around drugs, the treatments that we give people that a lot of the time do make them better. But pharmaceutical companies, the companies that manufacture and sell these drugs are a relatively new invention, certainly compared with what the Romans had or even the things that were around at Chaucer's time. Now we're going to talk to Professor Tilly Tansey, who works with Vivian Nutton at UCL, and she's studying the more recent history of medicine. Hi Tilly. Hi. Let's start with looking at pharmaceutical companies, which seems to be a very modern invention. What can you tell us about where these kind of companies came from and a bit about their history and how they've contributed to the medicine we have today? Well, modern pharmaceutical companies as we would recognise them as sort of research-based industrial enterprises, really started in the latter part of the 19th century. They came very largely from the German chemical industry. And in this country, the chemical industry was one of the models and old-fashioned chemical manufacturers were one of the models. But also a big influence was the beginning of biological therapies, such as serum antitoxins which required laboratories, required animals to be used in animal experiments and scientists, properly trained scientists, to be doing the research work. So that was really when what we would recognise as a pharmaceutical industry started developing in this country. And what about the regulation of these kind of industries? Because you think, in theory, there's nothing to stop anyone saying, oh, I shall flog this, it makes you better. Um, How how about the history of uh, sort of regulation and protection against quackery? Well, it wasn't just theory, it was also in practice that people could just think, well, we'll make this and flog it. 
really well into the 20th century that happened. Certainly in, in Britain, quacks, sellers would go around marketplaces selling compounds. Often they would be long gone if there were any problems. Even quite well-known brands were often contaminated, sometimes deliberately so. There was very little regulation. The main regulation were actually the Poisons Act and then simple um, marketing regulations like weights and measures. And it wasn't until 1920s, 1926, that there was the beginnings of regulation in this country with the Therapeutic Substances Act, which just applied to four particular kinds of preparations, three biological preparations and Salvasan, which was a medicine against syphilis, an arsenic compound. And after that, it wasn't until 1968 that the Medicines Act was passed in this country, which came into being in 1971, where there was really formal legislation for all drugs. Before then, there'd just been perhaps one or two, for example, penicillin. There was particular regulations about penicillin. But otherwise, there was no uh, wholesale regulation in this country. And I guess with the rise of the internet, we're seeing almost, uh, again, an alternative medicine industry springing up that's very difficult to regulate and is very counter to, to pharmaceutical companies and their tightly regulated research. Yes, and it varies, of course, with... Pharmaceutical industry is now becoming global businesses. Regulations differ from continent to continent, from country to country. International regulation is a big issue. And what do you think have been the main drivers of change in modern medicine? How, how have we gone from sort of you know bloodletting and, and leeches to the very highly specialised technical medicine that we have today, and lots and lots of different drugs that we have? Well, you have to remember that medicine is not just drugs, although obviously. The, they are sort of the most obvious therapeutics that people think about. During the 20th century, what has really happened, a big explosion in medical knowledge, medical education becoming much more scientific-based, explosion of laboratory research, which has then fed into clinical research and into clinical applications. And that has really been the story throughout the 20th century. And one of the things coming from my field, which is cancer research, one of the things I find fascinating is how serendipity has led to a lot of really important discoveries. So things like the discovery of platinum drugs for for chemotherapy or the discovery of nitrogen mustards, which were poison gas Mm. in the First World War. And then we discovered that they were actually quite powerful ways to treat things like blood cancers and lymphomas. And what what are your sort of favourite serendipitous discoveries in medicine? Well, you've just mentioned one of them, in fact, platinum compounds, because I think the platinum compounds are story of platinum compounds for chemotherapy, really starting from a a chemist working in a lab in Michigan, looking at the effects of, say, platinum compounds on cell growth, on microbial growth. From that, going through talks with microbiologists, with cell biologists, to oncologists, looking at how platinum compounds might affect, if they affected the growth of normal organisms, what would they do to abnormal growth, i.e. a cancer cell? And then the development, and this was particularly in this country, the development of platinum compounds, and then some clinical testing. And platinum compounds were found to be almost wonder drugs because they did affect uh, solid tumours like tumours of the ovary and testes, for which there were very little treatments beforehand. But the big problem with the platinum compounds, and it had been a recognised problem with other chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but the platinum compounds in particular caused nausea and vomiting. And so much so that even though they were the only drugs for these foul kinds of cancers, patients refused to take them because they got so sick. And so a sort of an added little twerk of research and another sort of serendipitous leap was that pharmacologists became particularly interested 
in developing anti-nausea and vomiting drugs because of the platinum compounds. And pharmacologists then worked, started working on what are known as 5-HT3 receptor antagonists, which really counteracted the nausea and vomiting from platinum compounds and also led to the development of drugs that could be used for, against other chemotherapy and radiotherapy adverse effects. So, so I think it's a wonderful story. And it starts from a chemist interested in platinum compounds in a lab in Michigan. It's fantastic. And I, I love the way that, you know, big medical discoveries, they do have to involve so many people over yeah. so long. And you think what the eureka moment must have been. It, it never seems like a eureka moment at the time. Well, exactly. And you've raised another important point, so many people, because modern medicine is a big, big screen. There are numerous players in it, unlike, you know, the Roman medicine that uh, my colleague Vivian Nutton was talking about with, you know, the major doctors. Yes, doctors still play a part, but there are scientists, there are technicians, there are paramedics, there are a whole range of people now involved in the process of medical research. It's certainly something at Cancer Research UK, the organisation I work for, we're trying to track down how we've discovered things in the mm. past and trying to trace the relationships between people. Tell us about some of the ways that you're trying to gather together doctors and scientists to actually trace medical history as it's happening. Well, what I do is, um, in my own work, obviously I do quite a lot of tracing records and talking to people on a one-to-one -one basis. But what I've particularly developed at UCL is a process called a witness seminar, where we get together a group of people who've been involved in particular discoveries or debates to actually ask them to sit around together to talk about what happened, why, what perhaps went wrong, some of the serendipity which we've just talked about, to discuss this and to do it, to have it, the whole meeting recorded, it's then transcribed and edited. And in that way, we're actually bringing together a whole group of people, sometimes who've never met each other, to talk about particular advances and debates. The famous scientist Sir Peter Medawar, the Nobel laureate, once wrote famously that the scientific paper is a fraud. Now, we could say, well, we could chart the history of, say, the discovery of platinum compounds by looking at all the scientific papers. But actually, when you get people together, they say that the scientific paper is so structured, you can't get the stories behind the science. So when you get people together, it's like open peer review. They can all talk together, they can disagree, they can stimulate memories, and they can tell us about what happened, why things happened, and sort of the sub-stories that don't make it into the formal scientific literature. I always think those are the most fascinating stories in science, you know, the personal stories of how someone was in the lab late and then something weird happened and then it, it turned into a, an interesting discovery. What do you think are the most interesting stories that have turned out from your witness seminars? Well, certainly, as, as we just said, the platinum compounds, because we did actually get all those people we've talked about, from the chemist all the way up to the pharmacologist developing antiemetics in, in one room, which they were quite stunned by because they'd never done that <laughs> together. Another one which was a particular favourite that we did was haemophilia, looking at changes in treatment of haemophiliacs, particularly from the, after the Second World War, and how really was people working in... in very primitive situations, almost huts at the back of labs in Oxford, working out the blood chemistry and how clotting factors evolved, which explained why some people don't clot because particular factors are not available, and then actually developing, manufacturing the factor to give to haemophiliacs. And a particular interesting thing out of that project was, which had never occurred to me, and indeed most of the people at the meeting, hadn't, it hadn't occurred to them, the importance of home freezers, because when people had managed to manufacture 
Now, factor eight, which was it's a commonest lesion for haemophiliacs, the commonest missing material, factor eight was frozen and then given to patients, so they had to go to hospitals. And, and of course, patients, haemophiliacs, are mainly at that time were mainly children. So there's a great deal of disruption of schooling, and you know they've had a very they were labelled as invalids and very disrupted lives. Where a very influential lady physician at the Wolfrey Hospital, Kathleen Dormandy, campaigned for home freezers. And this was in the mid-60s when home freezers were very, very rare. Because if patients had a home freezer and if their freezer had an alarm on it, so if the electricity supply was disrupted, patients knew that their precipitate that was in the freezer was going to be damaged. But if they had those freezers, they could self-medicate. They didn't have to go to hospital. So this made quite a revolution so they could live a normal life. It was almost a demedicalization of a condition, and children could Brilliant. have normal schoolings. And that made you know, an enormous difference to patients' lives. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there and move on, but it's absolutely fascinating stuff, and I'd recommend trying to uh, have a look through some of those witness seminars. They're really interesting. Thank you very much. That's Tilly Tansy from UCL. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. And now it's time for Question of the Week. And this week, who's afraid of the big bad snake, asks Damien from Australia. G'day. I was wondering if you could tell me why are Australian snakes so much more toxic in general than other snakes in other parts of the world? Thank you very much. Is it really worth wearing extra big boots on your treks around Australia? My name is Dr Wolfgang Wuster. I'm at the University of Wales in Bangor. The idea that Australian venomous snakes are more toxic than those anywhere else is to a large extent a myth, which started out with a study that was published approximately 30 years ago, which took 25 different snake venoms and showed that the top 10 of those were Australian. Of course, it only included five non-Australian venomous snakes, so it's rather like the American Baseball World Series. You can't lose if you don't include the competition. In reality, the two snakes in the world with the most toxic venom drop for drop are in fact Australian. Immediately after that, when you look at the table of the most toxic venoms, you start having a large number of other snakes coming in. And a large number of Australian venomous snakes are actually not spectacular at all in the potency of their venom. So there's nothing intrinsic about Australian snakes being particularly toxic. I mean, the, the amazing thing is that the, the snake with the most toxic venom in the world, the inland taipan, has never actually killed anyone. Some snakes live in remote areas and in places where there is no medical treatment, and other snakes live in areas which are either very remote and people don't go to, so they don't bite anyone, or there is good antivenom and good treatment available. If you're bitten in Australia, the flying doctor comes and picks you up, and you go to a hospital, and uh, in 99.5% of cases, everything is going to be just fine. If you get bitten in West Africa, then there is no antivenom, there is no hospital that can treat you, and uh, you slowly bleed to death from a snake that has a fraction of the killing power. So, statistically, snakes in Oz aren't actually all that bad, but you probably wouldn't want to play snake sushi roulette. Hmm. But the fact that the snake with the most toxic venom is in Australia has been explained all sorts of ways in our forum. Madidus scientia suggested that the lack of water means the snake's venom is more concentrated. And uh, Dr Beaver pointed out that where prey is rare, you need to make sure your bite is an effective one. And from snake bite to bedbugs, are fish afraid of them too? Hello, Naked Scientists. My name is Laura, and I'm calling from Huntington Beach, California, in the USA. Why is it that fish do not have eyelids? 
My goldfish and koi fish assume a nightly ritual of gathering in one lower portion end of the tank when I turn out all the lights at night for bed. They're all still there in the morning as if they were sleeping. How long do fish sleep? And how can they rest if their eyes never close? Thank you, Naked Scientist. If you know what it is that fish get up to at night, then let us know. You can write your answers on our forum, and that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Katani and me, Diana O'Carroll. Now, we've looked back at medicine through history, but we can also use modern medicine to try to diagnose historical people's illnesses. That's exactly what happened when Peter Watson, an ophthalmologist, noticed that portraits of Galileo showed him with one eye pushed outwards and downwards. We know that Galileo suffered from a series of unknown eye complaints and eventually lost his sight, but modern evidence may shed light on what these conditions were. Well, I was writing a book on scleral disease and I read a paper which suggested that Galileo might have had scleritis. So I looked at the paper. I wasn't totally convinced, but I realised there was a portrait of Galileo in the Fitzwilliam Museum and the archivist showed me the picture. And when I looked at it, it was quite clear that he didn't have scleral inflammation, but he did have a very unusual condition, which is known as mucosal of the frontal sinus. This is a condition which caused by a congenital anomaly of the frontal sinus, so you don't actually drain the mucus from your frontal sinus, and it accumulates. And this pushes the eyeball downwards and outwards, and in the portrait he used has to lift his eyebrow up to keep his eye open, and this eye is quite obviously displaced from the other one. Looking at the portrait, it looks like he's raising his eyebrow at us quite suggestively. How do we know it's an accurate portrait? The portrait was done in 1624 by a person called Leone. He and his father gave a lot of portraits which are alamacci, which means as it is or to show the personality, and they were well known for doing just exactly that. So this is almost certainly correct. And the original sketches are also extant, one in the Louvre, which show exactly the same situation as we have here. What needed to be done next was to find out whether this anomaly was present before these portraits were taken, which was when he was 64. Indeed, the portraits prior to that do show that particular anomaly. Could this picture be indicative of any eye conditions other than a mucosal or a cyst in the frontal sinus? You accept it, it's totally characteristic. There really isn't another condition that looks like it. But if you do look at a portrait of him when he was 34, it shows that he does indeed have an anomaly of the inner part of his right eyelid and the eyebrow, so that I think it, it was part of a congenital anomaly. And as we look through the portraits through the years, you can actually see it sort of getting worse until that one when he was 64. Some people have argued that perhaps... He spent far too much time looking through a telescope at the sun. Why do you think this wasn't the case? Well, if he'd had solar retinopathy, he would have been centrally blind. The sun's rays would burn the macula, so he would not have been able to see centrally. And this clearly was not the case. When he looked at the sun, he used the reflective technique for doing so. And, of course, he described first person to describe sunspots. So these were all done by shadow drawings, which are extraordinarily accurate. How could a mucosal affect Galileo's sight? Well, none of the conditions we've talked about at the moment have any relationship to blindness, which he went, and he went totally blind. 
The story is quite interesting in that he was brought up mostly by his father, but he was sent to a monastery called Villambrosa, and when he was there, he um, developed an extremely severe ophthalmia, for which he was actually removed from the monastery. He then recovered from that and was perfectly all right until he was in his mid-30s. He then had a lunch with a friend of his when he was working in Padua. The three of them went down into a, a cool room in the middle of the summer to have a siesta. And this room was cooled by a waterfall. And when they all woke up, they were all extremely ill. One man died more or less straight away. Another one died three weeks later, totally deaf. Galileo was deaf in one ear for a little while, and, but actually recovered. And thereafter, he complained of extreme pain in his joints, bloody discharge, and generally unwell. And he used to have bouts of this, which were so severe that he was stuck in bed for a very long time. In fact, on one occasion, when there were three comets to look at, he couldn't even get out of bed to look at them, and they had to be described to him. So he really must have been extremely ill. Well, all of this is enough to set up, if you have an inflammation in the eye as a result of immunological disease, then this would certainly do it. And one of these, of course, is ulcerative colitis or writer's disease or Crohn's disease, all of which have specific HLA types. So it may have been that in addition to the swelling above his eye, his own immune system was eventually responsible for his blindness. Are there any more clues? Well, he then described a condition where he saw halos around the lights, and this was really as an aside in a book on optics, where he described this halo when he looked at a candle, and it expanded and contracted according to the condition of his eye. And he recognised that this was indeed due to the swelling of the front of his eye, his cornea. And this, of course, is a glaucomatous halo. But if you look carefully at the history thereafter, you find that right to the very end of his life, even when one eye was extremely bad, he was still able to observe through the telescope. And in fact, he described a thing called the libations of the moon, where the moon moves slightly in one way and another within the last few months of his sight. Clearly he could see accurately right down the middle of his vision, even though he had no peripheral vision. So this is much more like an angle closure glaucoma. And so we now have a problem. We have a possibility of him having a uveitic glaucoma or a primary glaucoma, to say just simply due to a disease of his eye. And the only way we're really going to find this out is to find out whether he has a specific HLA types which could have been part of his seronegative disease. The glaucoma could have resulted from an autoimmune inflammatory disease or it could have come from an infection. And the HLA, or the human leukocyte antigen region, is a stack of genes that code for immune responses. So if you can find that, you'll know why Galileo lost his sight. That's what we'd like to do. <laughs> um, I'm not quite totally sure exactly the situation at the present time, but as I understand it, the Vatican has given permission for his body to be examined in the tomb in Santa Croce. And uh, Galileo himself lost two pieces of bone already, one of which is in the museum in Florence and the other one in the museum in Padua. And neither of these show any arthritic changes which might be due to inflammatory disease. So this is yet another feature that makes me feel that it is actually an angle closure glaucoma and not a, a secondary glaucoma. But DNA taken from the body would enable us to find that out. So we'll keep an eye out for the details locked away in Galileo's genes. That was Peter Watson, who's on the International Council of Ophthalmology.
And that's all we have time for this week. So many thanks to Vivian Nutton and Tilly Tansy for joining us, to Tom Birch, Richard Barnett, Chris Howe and Peter Watson for sharing their stories with us. Thanks also go to our production team. That's Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingham, Tom Simpkins, who's been doing the desk tonight, and Dave Ansell. And finally, thanks to all of you at home for listening. Next week, we're going to have a special show from the South African SciFest, where they've all been off at the moment, discovering the events going on there and getting an exclusive behind-the-science peek at our explosive Chris Packett fireworks show. As usual, if you've got any questions for us, then do get in touch. Chris at thenakedscientist.com If you'd like to hear the show again or catch up with old shows you've missed, you can download the Naked Scientist podcast for free from www.thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts. So, have a great week and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Naked Scientist.